This is In the Studio with Michael Card. Welcome to our program this week. I'm Wayne Shepard, sitting alongside Michael here in the studio. And, you know, we say this every week, Michael, but I can't wait to get on with today's program. We have so many wonderful things planned. We're going back in history to listen to the wisdom of a man who's actually gone home to be with the Lord, but uh, someone who's affected so many people's lives, Dr. William Lane. I'm going to talk to you more about that in just a moment. But also, let's mention that Kirk Whalem oh, yeah. is going to be here. Now, you've been talking and talking to me about Kirk, and we'll get to meet him today. I've been so anxious for you to get to meet Kirk. What a dear, dear brother. All right, we'll look forward to that, and he'll bring a saxophone to the mm-hmm. studio here, and hopefully we'll get to hear him play oh, that. Oh, yeah. Magnificent oh, yeah. instrument as well. Okay. Getting back to uh, Bill Lane, this is a name that uh, people hear you talk about often. Um, Dr. Lane is now home with the Lord. Yes. Explain again for newer listeners the significance of this man. William Lane is a person that discipled me uh, intensively for six years in school, but for 21 more years after that, uh, as as an older, uh, as, a, as a grown man, he was still discipling me. He was a Ph.D. from Harvard, spoke 16 languages, wrote uh, biblical commentaries, a Mark commentary for the New International Series. But don't get it wrong. He was very relational. It, it, yeah, that that was the mix. You had this very uh, available, very naive, very childlike person with this incredible mind who loved to walk and talk and spend time. And you got to know him in, uh, in his later uh, months. I did. As a matter of fact, what we're about to hear was recorded with you and I here in the studio before yeah. he passed away. So. Yeah. Let's go back in time now as we hear from Dr. Lane, his Bible teaching, The Cycle of Discipleship. This is the first of a three-part series here in the studio. The cycle of discipleship begins with the call of Jesus upon our lives to be with him. And he engages us in a number of situations in which participate in ordinary life and extraordinary life as well. Mm -hmm. We are with Jesus in the situation. After we have been with him, the cycle moves into a second phase. We are commissioned to speak his word Hmm. and to do his work. We cannot do that until we have been with Jesus. The cycle then advances to still a third stage, when after we have been out speaking his word and doing his work, we come back and report to him all that we have done and all that we have taught. And then we hear Jesus say to us, Now come and rest and be with me in new situations. Mm. And the cycle continually renews itself. So it's not that we're in one point in the Christian life all, all the time. This cycle is repeating in each one of our lives as we follow Christ. If we are to follow the gospel pattern, yes, Michael. Mm -hmm. I think that it's all too easy, however, to be caught up in a period in which we're with Jesus or to be Mm -hmm. caught up Mm -hmm. in a period in which we're doing the work of the ministry. That's my problem. I, I get stuck there thinking, well, that's what I'm called to do. You know, Jesus' word, Jesus' work, just like you taught me, Bill. And that's where we become like a record that is stuck and it's skipping, <laughs> right. and, and we wonder, something, what is wrong? Yeah. Huh. And the answer is, we have not heard the call, now come apart and rest a while mm. and be with me in new situations, for I have yet more to teach you. Mm. I've never thought about it in terms of this, this cycle, as you call it, Bill, the cycle of discipleship. Well, uh, we're going to devote uh, this program and the next two programs to this topic. So can we cover cycle number one? There yes, today? we can. And the place to begin is actually in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. We love to get to the scripture passage here and actually hear it. Michael, why don't you read it for us? Okay. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, what's interesting about that passage is that it's preceded by a paragraph where we see Jesus in the midst of the multitude. Mm -hmm. He's on the shores of the Lake of Galilee. From the south, that is, from Judea, from Idumea, from the regions to the east, the regions across the Jordan, the regions from the north, Tyre and Sidon, crowds of people 
keep on coming to Jesus, and he's engaged in ministry of proclamation. He is teaching them concerning the kingdom of God. He's also engaged in mercy ministries. We read that he healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, Why, you are the Son of God! And Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. We see Jesus in the midst of the many. Then the surprise comes with verse 13. Jesus withdraws from the crowds and gives his attention to the few. He went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, and he pointed twelve that they might be with him. That brings us into the first phase of the cycle of discipleship. And the key phrase here is that they might be with him. That's that's your point, Bill. Yes. And, of course, the appointment of twelve was not something incidental. Mm -hmm. The twelve tribes of Israel were now going to have, as it were, a new configuration. Here was the beginning of a new Israel that would be sensitive to God's covenant relationship with his people. And the interesting fact is, to these twelve, impressive promises are made. And these are not impressive men, are they? This is not the creme de la creme. I've heard you talk about that. (laughs) That's true, and that's the point uh, that I would uh, want to move on to in just a moment. But let's hear the promise. Okay. Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom, and you will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But as you have said, Michael, they are not particularly impressive in themselves. They are not those we would have chosen if we had a program for world mission. Mm. Now take for an example this man, Bartholomew. If you were to take a little three-by-five card and write his name in the upper left-hand corner and had as an assignment to write on that card everything that you know about this man. (laughs) Not only would you be reduced to a sentence or two, but you might well be wrong in what you had written down. Really? You would say, of course, he was one of the twelve. That's correct. You would say, secondly, we know his name, and that's incorrect. Hmm. Bar is simply the Aramaic word for son. We know the name of his father. His father's name was Tolmai. He was simply known as the son of Tolmai. But we don't even know his own personal name. But do you know I find the greatest encouragement in that? Jesus wanted this man to be with him. That was the significant fact. And the truth of the matter is, while you and I have had a close relationship, Michael, most of our listening audience do not know my name. And yet I am one of those that Jesus wanted to be with him. Mm -hmm. And that's the significant fact Mm -hmm. that sets me apart as one upon whom the call of God has come and a call to which I want to be responsive. Wow, that is loaded with significance already here, Bill. As you think about, you know, uh, what am I worth? You know, I I know that I have infinite worth in God's eyes, and yet sometimes you, you feel ordinary. And yet you're saying that God can use us as ordinary people. In fact, God loves the ordinary person. I think oftentimes when we hear persons on the radio, we see them on television, we see them giving leadership to large congregations, we see gifted persons. 
And perhaps a spirit of envy is birthed within us. Mm. If only I could be a gifted person like that. Well, it's, if only I could sing like Michael Carr. Let's, That's be, let's right. be honest. That's right. right. Had a voice like Wayne Shepard. Or <laughs> That's a right. like Bill Lane. <laughs> You're all included in this circle. But the truth of the matter is, everyone that Jesus wants to be with him is a person who is both gifted and needy. Mm-hmm. And Bartholomew was just such a person. So am I. Now, what's interesting is it's obvious that phase two of that that cycle, he chose 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. That will concern us in Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13. But when I ask myself, What is the significance of the material in the Gospel of Mark between the call of the Twelve and the sending of them out two by two on mission? In other words, Mark 3.20 through 6, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. Why, there we see the disciples with Jesus in a variety of situations. They are with Jesus, and it's the significance of our being with Jesus that I want to stress for our listening audience. Well, Bill, knowing just that much, I mean, God uses us as ordinary people. Indeed, he does, and involves us in ordinary situations that he might be an extraordinary God (laughs) uh, to us in the midst of those situations. Now, what's interesting is that in the Gospel of Mark, there follows six sections, as it were, in which we see the disciples with Jesus. So this is phase one now. This is phase one with being with Jesus. The first section extends from chapter 320 through 35. It is a situation in which Jesus is engaged in conflict, first with his own family, who felt that his failure to eat and sleep properly indicated he had lost his mind. He was also in conflict with the biblical scholars from Jerusalem, that is to say, the very best of the teachers in the land, who were convinced that Jesus was possessed by an evil spirit. So his family says he's out of his mind. The teachers of the law say he's possessed. And Jesus engages that conflict, and he engages it, With the twelve. They're right there with him. Yes. And I think we need to think about that and ask why. Why does the period of being with Jesus begin with opposition from the family, opposition from some of the great religious authorities of the day? Jesus knew that the call of God cuts across the grain of our culture It cuts across the grain of often our ambitions, Mm. our dreams, our plans. And the dreams that our families have for us. Yes. And what we see in this first uh, section is that Jesus knew if he was engaged in conflict because he had said yes to the call of God upon his life, we will be engaged in conflict as well. And it makes an enormous difference whether we engage conflict in our own strength or we engage it with Jesus. All right, Bill, you said that there were six, and the first is that Jesus taught them through his own encounter with conflict. Yes. Now, the second one is found in Mark 4, 1 to 35. Okay. And it's the great parable section of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus teaches in parables. And a parable is simply an extended comparison by which that which is unknown, namely the kingdom of God, is clarified by reference to that which is well known. Mm -hmm. The sowing of seed, uh, the the farming, uh, the baking of bread, uh, the catching of fish, things of these. Everyday things. Very ordinary things. And perhaps the key to it all is found in verse 33 and 34. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand, that is, to the crowd. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. 
He was trying to keep them from saying no to the call of God too quickly. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. You see, you can't speak the word of Jesus unless you've spent time with Jesus, allowing him to clarify what the call of God upon your life really means. And for Mark to give us the detail, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. That shows that this time of teaching parables was not simply for the crowd. It was specifically so that the disciples could be with Jesus to see him teach and to have those things explained. Absolutely. Never seen this that is before. Jesus as mentor. This is definitely Jesus as mentor who is doing the work of God, speaking the word of God and preparing his disciples to do precisely that. What's next here, The third extends from 435 through chapter 5, verse 20. It is engagement with the demonic. Mm. Now, this is not the way that oftentimes we think about reality. We tend to deny that there is a demonic cast to life. But in the furious storm that rose at the time that Jesus was asleep and the disciples were left to their own resources, Hmm. we are to hear in the text a reference to a demonic presence. For Jesus, you remember, is rudely awakened. He gets up. He rebukes the wind. He says to the waves, Quiet, be still. He speaks to them as if they were a person. Mm-hmm. And the disciples, terrified, not only by the storm, by but what has happened in the subsiding of the storm, say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They are in the presence of the one who confronts the demonic. The students are learning here. <laughs> well, I've never seen this before now, but that's the same thing he will say to demonic to to demoniacs, be quiet. Absolutely. In fact, the best translation, Michael, would be be muzzled. Mm. Be muzzled, be still. Well, that's followed immediately by the account of an encounter with a demoniac, a person, the center of whose personality has been taken over by demonic powers. And Jesus brings a remarkable release to this man, And the disciples are with Jesus. Now, why? Jesus knows that if he encounters the demonic in the course of a ministry that is given to the glory of God, they will encounter the demonic as well. Hmm. And we do not possess the personal resources in and of ourselves to confront the demonic. But to do so with Jesus makes all the difference. I just saw something else I'd never seen. After the demoniac is is cleansed or the demon is cast out, you know, he begs to go with Jesus, uh, but Jesus won't let him. Interesting to me, he hasn't been with Jesus in those other teachings. Those other phases of uh, other parts of phase one, is that? uh... And but notice what Jesus does say to him. He says, go home to your family. Have a ministry to your family Mm -hmm. and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Be a personal witness. Mm -hmm. And he does become a disciple for Jesus in a Gentile place as a Gentile person because God has done something remarkable for him. Bill, quickly take us through the other lessons here of Jesus' encounters as mentor with his disciples. The next account, which extends from 521 through 43, brings the disciples into the confusion of disease and death. The humiliation, if you please. And Jesus came to push aside the hand of death. He came to heal that which was sick. And the disciples are with Jesus. Jesus knows that if his ministry brings him into the presence of disease and death, so will their ministry. And once again, it makes an enormous difference. Whether you stand in the presence of disease and death in your own strength, 
far you stand there with Jesus. The final incident, chapter 6, 1 through 6, brings Jesus into his own hometown. And there he experiences personal rejection. And the disciples are with Jesus. You see, he came with the twelve. And one of the last phases of their training before he sends them out two by two is the experience of rejection. Why? He understands that the world turns on the axis of acceptance and rejection. And yet he came to be the one who was accepted by God, but frequently rejected by men and women and young people. And he knew they would experience that rejection as well. And once again, it makes an enormous difference whether you face rejection in your own strength or you face it with Jesus. Well, Michael, we're seeing such incredible insights here today into how Jesus relates to his disciples. Bill, for those of us who are listening and seeing these things for the first time, how should we apply this? What should we be learning here as we go today? We should be learning, Wayne, that Jesus understands the situations in which we find ourselves, and we do not enter those situations alone. Not in our own strength. He enters those situations with us. We face them with Jesus, and his resources, his wisdom, his love, his compassion, his discernment, his insight is there to undergird us as we face conflict, teaching, the demonic disease and death and rejection. And we are not to face these as individuals cut off from, the, from Jesus, but those who are with Jesus. That I am never alone 
And with each passing moment, I'll keep hoping it's true. I left everything to follow you. Everything to follow. Everything to follow. Everything to follow you. Everything to follow. Everything to Michael, what an appropriate song to uh, follow what Dr. Lane had to share today. Mm-hmm. All about discipleship. It's all about letting go of things. And Peter is such a wonderful example of a person who literally, as he said there in Mark 10, we've left everything to follow you. Mm-hmm. Well, what we heard today from Bill Lane is only the first of three parts. We'll share the other lessons in the weeks to come here in the studio But I don't want to skip over the fact that here we are hearing from this man who meant so much to you Mm -hmm. and now is with the Lord. I mean, that. And and who spent a lifetime uh, poring over the scriptures and asking himself basic questions. I mean, this teaching came from the basic question how did Jesus disciple? You know, what was his discipleship program like? And then Bill looked at the Gospel of Mark, which he's so familiar with because he wrote a commentary on it. And he came up with this wonderful teaching, which is one of the last gifts that he gave to us before he died. It's one thing to pick up one of his books, I'm sure, for you and to read it, but to hear his voice. Yeah, it brings back a whole world that uh, really died when he died, a a world of... uh, I don't know when when you when you walk with someone who is your mentor for so long uh when he goes home to be with the Lord your world changes I mean it's time it was time for me to step up to the plate mm-hmm. and uh, and grow up I guess in, in and he knew ways. that too didn't he I I guess he, he knew that and uh he certainly did his best to to prepare me for that time Well, we look forward to the remaining parts to this series from Dr. Lane in the weeks to come here in the studio. But still, we have to come. Uh, One of the greatest jazz instrumentalists alive. (laughs) And now it's a big introduction, but it really is true. Mr. Kirk Whalem is going to be here with us in just a minute. And we'll hear that conversation after this break. If you'd like to reach us with your comments and Bible questions, send your email to inthestudio at michaelcard.com. Now, to access the audio archive for this or any In the Studio broadcast or to learn more about the program and Michael's ministry, join us on the web at www.michaelcard.com. We'll be right back with Kirk Whalem here on the Moody Broadcasting Network. with jazz saxophonist Kirk Whalem. Thank <laughs> you. 
about my, that? Huh? Oh my goodness! <laughs> How you're, about that? You're a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk Whalem, welcome in the studio with us here. It is such a pleasure for me to be here. What's a nice jazz guy like you doing in a place like this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hanging out with you guys, man. This is what friends will do. This yeah. is what real friends yeah. will do. Condescend to men, to men of low estate. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Kurt, I am so happy to meet you. I can't tell you how many times Michael has said, man, you got to meet Kurt. You got to meet this guy. He's the best. Well, y'all never met? Not until today. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Not until okay. today. Okay, cool. And everyone heard what you just did. What was that? Well, actually, it was a song called All the Things You Are, which is a jazz standard, but uh, uh, no, that's wrong. Uh, th- that's not true. It was There Will Never Be Another You. I was going to do All the Things You Are, but it's interesting to me how many jazz standards, um, if you take the title and the melody, uh, they really do relate to uh, one's relationship with the Savior. You know, you can imagine the disciples once he left, before they realized that, you know, that he would indeed be back, you know, God, there will never be another you. Mm-hmm. you know? Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, Michael, um, we're delighted to have Kirk here today. You know, some people are saying, wait a minute, how are you going to reconcile this jazz thing with, uh, but we have no problem with that whatsoever, do we? (laughs) Well, uh, uh, that's part of uh, Kirk's story that I wanted him to share with us is uh, I think he went through a process of uh, reconciling his faith with jazz and then then has come out with the gospel according to jazz and some other hymns records. Not to say that you just... Christianized jazz. I mean, right. jazz in and of, in and of itself. I mean, speaks. I, th- I think is that song a wonderful mm. example of. Mm. So, so talk to us. I mean, yeah. what, you know, what's it been? <clears throat> well, first of all, you know, aspiring to 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 play this music, aspiring to learn to be a jazz musician, is a lofty, a very high mm. and lofty and long lifelong pursuit, mm. and it's something that I think. I decided at one point, you know, when when the Lord really got a hold of my heart, it was after I had become a jazz musician, mm-hmm. as it were, and I decided that I wasn't going to apologize for it. That mm-hmm. I really, uh, I wanted to pursue this music because uh, it's it's incredible. It's an, it's amazing music. Well, tell the story. I mean, can you tell us the story about the church, the people in the church coming to you and saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the the, the first thing was uh, just, you know, starting out as a 12 year old uh, uh, playing the saxophone. And the first song, of course, I learned was Amazing Grace. And, mm-hmm. and we'll have to play that a little later on. But I bet uh, you weren't like most 12 year olds starting on the saxophone, though. Well, you know what? Because my dad is a pastor um, and I knew that my first venue would <laughs> would certainly be the church. <laughs> Pretty straight. <laughs> I figured I'd learn something that they, you know, that they would know. But no, but as a 12 year old, I. The, the first week I played uh, Amazing Grace in church and uh, fast forward really quickly and say that to, to play Amazing Grace in front of 75 people as a 12 year old, you know, is one thing. But then when I uh, I guess in 1994, I played Amazing Grace on stage with Whitney Houston, with whom I had been performing, you know, for years. I played that same song in front of 75,000 people wow. in Johannesburg mm, wow. and 7.5 million live, you know, listening on, I mean, mm. watching on, on HBO. Mm. So to play that song, that song is like the bookends of, of my, you know, <laughs> my life and career. But, <laughs> but yeah, just to, to say that, you know, when I finally got to the point where I, I was, I was committed to learning to be a jazz musician, um, I, I think that was just like there's no there was no stopping it because it's such a it's such a lifelong pursuit. You know, mm-hmm. you know? how did the church uh, deal so, with so so that you know I, interestingly in our particular setting again my dad being a, a pastor in what we could say as a black Baptist church mm-hmm. uh, for the unfortunate you know reason that we can separate them like that mm-hmm. um, you know it, it was really not too big of a struggle because. So much of the music that we could classify as black gospel music is is unabashedly influenced by jazz. You know, there are jazz harmonies, jazz rhythms, uh, the the melodic inflections and and phrasing. A lot a lot of that came from jazz and or rhythm and blues. Uh, so that it, it wasn't too big a deal. I think more than anything, it's a matter of when you go out and you and you're gonna learn to play jazz. Well, you know, you can't learn that pretty much in the classroom you can learn a lot of the theory you obviously a lot of the harmonies but but you kind of need to go out and play mm. and so it was more so that it was more so playing in jazz bars that you know <laughs> that's the thing that uh sort of raised the eyebrows mm-hmm. you know 
Well, I, I remember you telling us a story that there was a point when the church said this isn't appropriate. I remember you and Vance Taylor sharing the same story that you did right. meet with some conflict at some point, and you right. had to say, "I'm not going to apologize for this." I, yeah. Well, yeah. I guess in, you know later on in my in my career, you know, I found. Um, I, I know now the story you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. When I went to play at my mother's church, my mother at, at a later date, you know, lived in uh, in Chicago, and uh, I went and, and played at her church. And she was so excited to have me come play. She told, "Well, my son is a musician; he's going to come play." And and I and I don't think they reckoned, you know, that I was going to be playing saxophone. I think they said, "Well, must he must play the organ?" You know, <laughs> and, which at this time, you know, at this time, of course, is the accepted, you know, church right, instrument. Right, right. And so I walk up in there with a saxophone case, and you could just cut the, you know, <laughs> the astonishment. Like, what is? that you know and because apparently this particular pastor had been preaching ve- vehemently against uh, you know these worldly walk instruments right in, yeah. yeah i walked right into it and of course my mother's oblivious she's like look at my baby you know? <laughs> and so this pastor you could tell he had a lump in his throat he was like god what am i going to do now because of course you know my mom is like you know she you know her yeah. big tithers in the church so i was like <laughs> you know they kind of have to let this you know go through and uh sure enough it, it was it was interesting to see them kind of you know, to stare in their faces. They were looking at the pastor, mm-hmm. you know, as I began to play, they were like, okay, now how's he going to react? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And of course, you know, when you get an instrument, whatever instrument, you know, even one of one of Michael's, you know. Well, they did the same thing to us in the 70s with guitars. Guitars are demonic. I couldn't play in my own church. Really? Right? And people forgot have forgotten that. Oh, yeah. I mean, wow. in kind of in the, there was an analog of this in the white church where drums were certainly demonic, but yeah. guitar mm-hmm. music was not accepted either. Wow. Yeah. Same so it thing. wasn't personal, yeah. Kurt. Yeah, no, I <laughs> no, didn't no, think no. it personal. And Nothing eventually we, we won them over, I mean, eventually, so... Uh, <laughs> That's great. But yeah, it really is. It's something how we can put, we can sort of attach our own uh, cultural dynamic to uh, to the gospel. Now, I remember a morning prayer session that we had when Bill Lane was still alive and, and Kirk sort of told his story. And I remember Bill saying, uh, quoting the passage from Numbers, is it? Uh, uh, well, actually, it's, it's about when, when Moses was, was up uh, about to receive his marching orders, you yeah. know, up on the mountain with the burning bush, you know, and and uh, you know Moses is like, no, I don't, I can't, I stutter, I, I can't do this, and yeah. and so God, in all His patience, says, well, you know what? What's that in your hand? And uh, Moses is like, a staff. He said, exactly. So I'm going to do all these these great exploits through the staff. <laughs> since you say you're not worthy, I'll show you. Yeah. I can do it with a stick, you yeah. know. <laughs> and in essence, what Bill Lane was saying to me is that that saxophone is your staff, and you've already been in front of way more people than I'll ever be. Yeah, your that, staff just curved a little differently. Yeah, than that's his. exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that was an amazing moment for me, though, because he looked at Kirk and said, Kirk, what's that in your hand? That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that was, it was a defining uh, moment for me. Yeah, yeah. me too. Me well, too. I'm kind of sad you yeah. laid that saxophone down there. I'd like to hear a little bit more, wouldn't you, Mike? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're going to kind of put you on the spot here, Kurt. We do this with guests once in a while, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do improvise. it to you, too. Man, that's we'll, what, that's yeah. what we do for a living. If anybody can do it, you can do it. <laughs> I should be able to. Okay, what, you got something in mind here? Well, uh, no, let's see. I don't have anything in mind, but let's try something. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
thank you, Kirk mm-hmm. Willem. Uh, you said you didn't have it in mind. You just started playing. I mean, what's going inside the mind of the jazz man here today, Michael, don't you think? What's that going on? That is the question. Yeah. <laughs> was it just in there? Was it in the sax? I mean, well, I think what, what it is, the concept is to have uh, enough to work on having enough technique and to have enough vocabulary in terms of, you know, harmonic idioms or, or um, you know, technical things to be able to improvise. And In fact... That, to me, is the wonder of jazz that really does translate so well into uh, the gospel and is sharing the gospel, is that <clears throat> it really is about being able to communicate something much bigger than you. Mm-hmm. So you, you try to get yourself to the point where you can tap into that thing. So it's always going to be greater than you, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to, okay, well, I've practiced this particular piece and I've shed it and I've, I can, I can um, give my interpretation of this piece. No, it's like these are the parameters, so let me see if I can prayerfully get inside of it to bring out something more beautiful. And it's always fresh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. would you do that the same way if you did it oh, all over no. again? I, I would have the hardest time. No, <laughs> you couldn't. I've had to, that. I've had to try to do that once. I did a solo on a Luther Vandross record, who is a, who is a great singer, who by the way right now is in is in a coma. And oh. and uh, oh. but I I I I played a solo on the record as usual. Um, but then I went out and did some live dates with him, and, and he and I at this particular point I started improvising the solo, and he stopped in rehearsal. He said, "No, no, 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 play the solo." I'm like, oh, you mean uh, from the record? Yeah, he's like, oh, gee. play oh, the no. solo. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. So I had to go back to the hotel and learn my solo, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh. <laughs> so that's a bad day for you yeah, when you have to do day. that. Huh? Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Man. But isn't that the, I mean, that's the freshness, that's the joy, really, of jazz. Well, you know, it? I think there's, again, there's a freedom that I would love to see more Christian musicians have. Uh, that again, fortunately, I was able to to have some of that kind of fun with Michael and the guys when I did his his live uh, video. Um, you know, where guys just just kind of let it flow, and I think that God's able to is more or less getting out of the way, and God can can speak more clearly when we. But do I that. think you see that in Jesus relating to people. He never relates to two people in the same way. It's right. almost like he's. He's improvising. improvising. Yeah, yeah if, in if that Jesus sense. improvised. Because there's a thing, obviously, that's bigger than their little conversation. And to me, that that's a wonderful area of creativity you see in his life. And it does. It links to jazz. As opposed to our our model, which is, you hear these four spiritual laws or, you know, here's my my script that mm. I'm going to share with lost people, which is, I guess, better mm-hmm. than nothing. But yeah, sometimes yeah. it's not much better than nothing. Well, you think about when, when Jesus, you know, spit in the ground and made, you know, the little thing out of mind. Uh-huh. You, you got to think, come on. He was just <laughs> he said, you know, I'm going to do something so far fetched here that, you know, <laughs> yeah, just I, to prove that I am you know, who I said. I, I think that make an interesting book sometime, don't you, Michael? What? Scribbling uh, in the sand. Oh, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'll work on that. <laughs> just wanted to get that in there. Just yeah. kind of right. slide that in. You right. know, it's my attempt at improvising. I get a little piece of it, okay? <laughs> Kirk, uh, your walk with the Lord. I mean, it's uh, Michael and, and you and others are in community here together, yeah. walking with Christ. And yeah. uh, how do you keep it fresh? Well, I have to say, you know, I, I won't. I won't get too mushy, but because uh, I know Michael hates that. But I'll say this, man: that Michael Card is is he he wouldn't realize it, but for me, he's like a hero for. For a lot of reasons, but one of the primary things is that being a member of of the Empty Hands Fellowship, which is something that the Lord just brought into my life, um, I am one of those guys who's trying to see reconciliation happen in mm-hmm. inside the body of Christ. Again, I have no doubt that reconciliation is probably going to happen outside of the body because it seems that that's where the world is going. You yeah. know, unity and diversity and all those concepts. Uh, you know, the strength and all of our cultures. But it seems like in the body of Christ, man, we're we're having the hardest time with that. Yeah. And and I think the primary problem is that most of us don't think we need it. Yeah. And so for a white brother like Michael to to be so um, intentional mm. about this reconciliation thing, I can't begin to say to you again, it's one thing to, to talk about it, but it's very difficult for me to really put in words how important it is for me, again, living in the South again now, um, to drive to a place, park, go into a room full of guys like Michael. You know, I let my guard down and what all of a sudden contrast, I'm man. in the safe house, you know. <sighs> 
And so uh, it's it's really something. Well, and it goes both ways because being friends with you has meant so much to me. I mean, I was I was telling as he came in, I, I have a, a picture of me and Kirk in my study. And whenever I, as I often tend to do, sort of get down on myself, I look at that picture and I say, well, Kirk Whalem thinks I'm okay. <laughs> so I must be okay. <laughs> so it goes both ways, uh, definitely, my uh, friend. A lot of hard work, though. I mean, is it easy? Oh, gosh. Well, geez. You know, <laughs> I, I'll say this, you know— um, my my career, my profession is, you know, you could say secular jazz musician, you know, for lack of a better term. I don't think you can be secular. It's pretty, and yeah, pretty hard to put a label yeah, on that. Yeah, you, you don't know, draw that line, do you? Yeah, I think, you know, I would more aptly say mainstream um, musician because I make my living playing concerts for, for people who primarily are, are from all kinds of different uh, belief walks. And and um, but primarily they're here to hear good music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's my job to, you know, to do that. And so I, I consider it um, a tremendous mission field. I, I consider it a, a great mandate to say that much like like Christ, you know, I'm I'm out here, you know, with this incredible message and I'm not ashamed of it. Amen to that. You know, wow. so I mean, Michael, you know, Kirk is touching lives that you and I will never have a chance. Well, to and talk. that was the point that Bill Bill made. Bill said, you know, I have my hundreds, but, you know, Kirk is playing to thousands. I mean, 70,000 people at a time. I remember seeing you on Saturday Night Live. That's I mean, right. I'm sure you're, you're tired of hearing that story. But <laughs> well, yeah, when my, when the neck of my saxophone, saxophone fell broke off. off. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. it broke. I thought it broke off. Uh, I'm playing. While you were playing? Yeah. yeah. Well, Whitney Houston was doing a, I'm Your Baby Tonight. And uh, we're back there jamming, and and sure enough, the the neck just breaks off the thing. I've yeah. never had that happen before. Yeah. Of course, it had happened on live TV, <laughs> and now it's on video for all the. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Kirk, thank you for coming here today. Now we got some time left, yeah, absolutely. and I would love to. Can can we ask? Tell us about your sax. There, I mean, okay. is this a special one to you? Well, it's a, it's a German horn, uh, Keilwert, uh, K E I L W E R T H. It's the wrong color, though. What's the, it what's is the deal? Black. It's black. It's anodized nickel, and it's anodized black, and uh, the keys are gold, and uh, it's. Uh, I got it in '89. And uh, it's just a really sweet horn. It's 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 like mu- like much uh, uh, stuff that's made in Germany. It's it's uh you could, it's like a tank. You can basically drop it and pick it back up and keep playing. Now is that like your is that your one? It is, is that the, the one baby. One. It yeah. is the one. Yeah. And, and unlike guitar players, you know, who collect a lot of instruments, I mean, this is it. You know. So there's that's a feel cool. to this. I, I think so. Yeah. It really has. Uh, and plus, I listen to a lot of the old guys. Stan Getz, you know. Uh, ben Webster, Arnett Cobb was my mentor. In fact, this is his ring that I wear. Oh, and, wow. um, you know, those guys, they, you know, they they would communicate. You know, it's like. In other words, they weren't so much playing as they were. They were talking. Yeah. They like telling yeah. stories, <laughs> you know, which, again, I feel like when when the heart is, is is totally recreated in the image of Christ, then the improvisation that comes out of it is recreated too. Mm. And uh, it's all of a sudden sanctified unto God. So I think more and more musicians, uh, the more I see guys really trying to get into this music, I'm I'm excited about it. Well, that, that's been my experience in listening to you, Kirk. I, I, I tried so hard, I, I, and I guess in the wrong way, to try to understand jazz. Mm-hmm. And then once we became friends, and I would go back and listen to your music, I would say, oh, I get this. Okay. Now I get this, because there was a relational element. I kind of knew where you were, and I'm still learning, and I'll, you know, I'll, I've got a lot to learn about jazz. But I must say that you were you were a real window for me to help help me appreciate what it's all about. I remember calling you at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, driving the bus through Idaho or something, <laughs> listening right. listen to his greatest hits, and left a message. I'm not going to say what the message was, but left, left a message on his machine. Wait you know, a minute. You called him at 3 in the morning? Well, I knew I was going to talk to a machine, but I was. it, it was like, I, I can't I can't believe this music, you know, and I just hung up because it was so amazing. <laughs> but you're right, and, and I, I think, you know, sure, jazz, jazz really scans the whole uh, spectrum in terms of of complexity and sometimes maybe over the top you know i think a lot of times we're it's it's, it's it can be very narcissistic you know but but i think there's there's uh, there's something in that in this music for just about everybody yeah, yeah. i do too well brother it's been Amen. great to have you here today yeah. we've got a few seconds for you to play something as we leave here now <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
think i ever found it quite so amazing it's just then. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing grace i believe it now yeah thank you what a great time we've had together in the studio with michael card before we go i want to remind you that there's much more information about this program michael's music and his teaching ministry the details are all available at www.michaelcard.com There's so much going on, and when you come online, you'll be able to keep up with the new features we've developed, like the Community Magazine, Michael's monthly e-journal called From the Study, and his newly released book on the emotional life of Simon Peter, titled A Fragile Stone. All this, as well as a complete audio archive of this program, can be easily accessed online. There's much to explore when you stop by www.michaelcard.com. Again, that's michaelcard.com. And we hope that you'll take a moment and let us know what you think of this program. Send your email comments and Bible questions to studio at michaelcard.com. And then don't forget to join us right here next week at the same time for an hour in the studio you won't want to miss. Our program engineer is Kenny Ferris, our producer Joe Carlson. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for being with us in the studio with Michael Card. In the Studio with Michael Card is a production of Community Broadcasting and the Moody Broadcasting Network.